Hi guys, good morning, afternoon, night, evening, wherever you're listening to this podcast, and welcome back to Teachable Psych. My name is Sarah Jane, your host, and this month's episode features guest Dr. Howard Nashbaum. And today's episode is a little more technical as we talk about terms such as memory consolidation and active recall, cognitive process. And if this interests you, please continue listening. And I hope you enjoy this episode, and I'll see you at the end. My name is Howard Nassbaum. I'm uh, the master of the Social Sciences Collegiate Division at the University of Chicago, and I'm deputy dean for the Social Sciences Division. I'm a member of the psychology department, the Stella M. Rowley Professor of Psychology, and I'm a member of the Committee on Computational Neuroscience. Easy. Can you tell us a little bit about what interested you and how why you're continuing in this field? Sure. So um, I can tell you that uh, I've actually been interested in psychology for a pretty long time. So I think when I was in fifth grade, maybe I learned Fortran programming and was interested in artificial intelligence. Um, and that's a long time ago. Um, when I was a kid, uh, I found my mother had a bunch of psychology books from college. And so I started reading those books and got very interested. When I was a, a freshman in high school at the University of Chicago Laboratory Schools, um, I, I built a Skinner box, which is a, a pair of cages that had little switches that I put in them. And I was basically doing a project that we had to do research projects in biology. And I did a project to train rats um, to see if they had a sense of time. Would they know when an hour passed? And I had a yoked control. So one rat could only get food every hour on the hour, and another rat could get food any time as a control for for the sounds and everything. Um, and that was one of my first psychology experiments, and I've actually been interested in psychology ever since. I went to Brandeis as an undergraduate because I thought there were psychologists there I wanted to study with. It turns out I was wrong because... We didn't have the internet then, and I couldn't Google uh, Maslow to see if he was still alive. Um, but I learned a lot about cognitive psychology and artificial intelligence, and then went to graduate school uh, in cognitive psychology and studied speech perception and perception. And the problems of how the mind works just always seemed to be fascinating to me, to understand how we gain experience from things we do in the world, and that changes us both in terms of our perception and our understanding of the world and the choices we make. And so those kinds of mysteries have been the things that have sort of kept me going, doing the work I've been doing for 40 years or so. You know, it's amazing. Can you tell us a little bit how the field has changed since you've entered? Yes. Um, So when I started... Um, let's say when I started doing research as a graduate student, I was very interested in neural mechanisms. How does the brain do things so that we have minds? That was the thing I was interested in. And I was working in a lab um, with a, a researcher by the name of uh, Naomi Weistein, um, who invented the term cognitive psychophysics. But what she was really interested in is how can we use behavioral measures patterns of performance 
um, in order to make inferences about the brain, how do we look at behavior to understand how the brain works? And I worked with uh, um, another uh, researcher, uh, James Sosh, who was a speech researcher, and GM uh, was interested in the same problem, but he did computer modeling, a little bit of neural mechanisms. So my interest there started with very simple ways of trying to study the brain, but we couldn't actually look inside the brain. And one of the things that's changed over the decades um, that I've been doing this is the ability to do non-invasive neuroimaging, to be able to look inside the brain using functional magnetic resonance imaging. And I started doing that um, a couple of decades ago with colleagues here at the University of Chicago, which was a realization of my interest in actually seeing how the brain works. And of course, unfortunately, fMRI is relatively slow, so it takes seconds for the brain to respond and seconds for the brain to cool down from what it was doing. And so you can't look at the sort of microsecond and millisecond by millisecond responses. And so in my lab, uh, we've made use of the changes in data analysis and data processing for electrophysiology. So when you put electrodes on the scalp, you can measure changes in the brain at a millisecond time frame. And nowadays, with advances in, in computational modeling, you can see where in the brain that's occurring. And so from when I was a graduate student until now, we've seen rapid advances both in terms of neuroimaging and making neurological neuroscientific measures on the one hand and computational analysis and modeling efforts on the other. Oh, wow. That's amazing. Sounds incredible. Um, one of the terms you mentioned, cognitive psychophysics, could you elaborate on what that is? Sure. So Naomi Weistein invented this term cognitive psychophysics, and she was putting together two kinds of fields. So one field is cognitive psychology, which is the study of how we understand things in the world, how we make inferences, how we use language, how we reason, how we solve problems. And on the other hand, psychophysics is a, is a domain of study of, and it was started by um, Fechner a um, long time ago um, to try to understand how physical energy in the world gets transformed into psychological states. So how does light become something that we see? How do acoustic patterns of vibration in sound uh, be translated into the things we hear? And so psychophysics was sort of about the front end and how sensory processes engage the physical world. Cognition was about the higher level reasoning and understanding processes. And Naomi's work was really about how knowledge changes those early sensory processes. And I was completely inspired by that notion that the things we do in terms of what we think change the way we see things in the world. And so that's kind of what cognitive psychophysics was about. That sounds really interesting. In 2014, could you explain your publication on speech perception and active cognitive process? Sure. So when I was a postdoc, when I was a graduate student, so pretty early on in my career, a lot of research on speech perception took a kind of view of mind and brain that essentially speech comes in your ear, 
and it travels up the eighth nerve to your brain and your brain does a little bit of mystical magical pattern recognition on it and then you understand uh, what you're hearing and so the notion is something that we call bottom-up processing the things flow from your eardrum to your brain in a direct line and what happens is they get successively processed as patterns but there's very little um there's very little understanding or cognition or expectations that change that. So what that means is that the sound that comes in your ear sort of is transformed into ideas, but ideas don't change the sound as it's coming in your ear. And the notion of an active process is, the, is this idea of cognitive psychophysics that the way we think about things, our expectations can actually change what we hear. So for example, um, uh, you may have seen the example of the dress on the internet, um, where the colors of the dress for different people, mm -hmm. when it was this dress, and there was a sound version of that as well. The idea of active processing is that the way we're thinking at the current moment can change exactly what we're hearing. In other words, if I'm expecting you to say something. I'll have a better idea of, of it and I will hear you better than if I have no expectation at all. You can, you can sort of compare this to um, like if you're driving on the highway and you're leaving a city and you're listening to a radio station, you can listen to that radio station for a long time, even as it gets noisier and noisier and you can follow what's going on. So you can get farther from the city and follow the radio program pretty easily. But when you're coming to a city, and you hear static, it's kind of hard to make sense of it until you get close enough for the static to be gone. And so what that means is that when you're following and understanding something, you can actually process the sounds better than when you're coming at it without expectations and without knowledge, and it's just a pattern. So essentially it's easier for us to process things when we're present and expect them? Exactly. Because the way we direct attention, the way we listen, changes based on what we expect. Wow, that's so cool. Now, as a director of Apex Lab, can you explain its impact of experiences in understanding the world? So that's a great question. Um, I'm not sure that I can justify our existence in terms of our real pragmatic impact. I guess I can tell you that um, one of the things that we've learned in our research, um, is that, well, let me start with something that I, I thought when I was a graduate student, I thought that speech perception, understanding speech was essentially something that we did with our ears and our minds. One of the things that, one of the theories that was out in the world is that the way we move our mouths, the way we know about our talking can actually change what we hear. And I didn't believe that. So th there are two theories. One theory is speech is an auditory process. We just listen to sounds. We transform them and understand them as sounds. But another kind of theory was that speech is something we do as speakers and we listen to as hearers. And that experience of the using our mouths changes the way we hear things. That is our motor system changes our perception. And I didn't really believe that. But once we started doing neuroimaging, once we started using fMRI, um, students and colleagues 
Jeremy Skipper, who is now a faculty member at UCL in, in London. Um, Steve Small is a dean um, at University of Texas. And I were doing research and basically showing using fMRI that the knowledge of your mouth movements, the motor system in your brain actually is involved in perception. So one of the things we've learned is that um, the way we speak changes the way we hear and online we use our motor system to understand speech. In other kinds of studies that we've done with colleagues at the University of Chicago, we've shown that the way you move your hands, the way you gesture, um, that actually helps you understand speech as well. So speech is not just sound understanding, it involves the motor system, it involves conceptions. Um, it's a complex process. Another thing that we've done that actually does have some impact in the world, although not large impact, is we've learned that, so there's something called perfect pitch. When somebody has perfect pitch, if they hear a note, they can name that note. But the average person can't do it. Even a good musician without perfect pitch can't do it. And students in my lab, Steve Van Hedger, Shannon Heald, and I did research that shows that you can actually train adults to have perfect pitch. And before we did that work, people believed you had to learn it as a kid or you had to have the right genetic components. And it turns out that we can train people to have perfect pitch, even as college students. There's genetic components for that? So there's a group at University of California, San Francisco, that's argued that perfect pitch depends on your genetics. Um, but because we've been able to take people as adults who didn't have perfect pitch and basically train them, what we found is that the people who can learn to have perfect pitch have very good auditory working memory. And that's not, that's not specific to music and it's not specific to perfect pitch. It's basically about sort of your auditory experiences and the way you process them generally. Have you guys done other experiences that compare cultures? Because you said the way we speak affects how we process things. And there's different, I guess, like norms in different cultures and different languages. So have you guys seen how that differs or? We have. We've done some work looking at um, uh, uh, native Chinese speakers and native English speakers listening to tone inflection. So in some uh, versions of Chinese, in Mandarin, for example, there are different tones that when the tones differ, either a rising pitch or a falling pitch or a level pitch, um, a word can change in its meaning. And that's not generally true in English. And so one of the things that we wanted to understand was how people pay attention to those tones when they're English speakers or when they're Chinese speakers. And we found that for native Chinese speakers, in some sense, those total components are a lot like consonants and vowels, that they pay attention to them in the same way. But English speakers pay attention to them differently. Um, so the way in which we listen to the sounds of speech, uh, whether we're, say, a Japanese speaker trying to listen to some English words like rock and lock, or whether we're an English speaker listening to those, one of the big differences between languages is the way in which they shape how we listen to the speech how we attend to the sound properties. And so that's one of the areas in which we've done some research. Well, it sounds really cool. Have you guys been able to go into other languages or is that all you've done so far? 
Um, we've looked at um, we've looked at some some work in Chinese and Japanese, but not so much other languages. We don't typically study a lot of other languages. My colleagues, uh, my colleague uh, Boaz Kesar and his students Sayuri Hayakawa uh, and others actually have studied a lot of different languages. And what they've looked at is when you're speaking in a second language. So let's say you speak uh, German and English. Um, and let's say you were born into an English household, but you learned German pretty early on. What they found is that when you're making decisions in your second language, you're actually more rational and you're less emotionally influenced. And so one way of solving certain kinds of problems that have per perhaps emotional significance might be to distance yourself from those problems by speak by working in a second language. That's very interesting. I've never heard of that. Cool. Um, can you explain your findings of your 2021 publication of Going Beyond Rote Auditory Learning? Sure. So one of the things we've been interested in the lab is essentially how... So let's say you're learning a second language. It, or or let's say you're listening, let's say you go to a lecture and the lecture is by somebody who's not a native speaker. It's probably a better example. And so they have a strong accent. So you listen to this person with a strong accent. And when you're starting out listening to them with this accent, you're sort of saying to yourself, I don't understand some of these words. But by the end of the lecture, you start to understand things. Over the course of the lecture, you sort of get used to the way they speak. You come to an understanding of their speech rather by the end of the lecture than before. So one of the things that we've studied is how people engage that process. What is it that happens when you're learning to understand a talker who's hard to understand? And one of the things we've learned is that it takes working memory, which is the way your mind holds on to something for a short period of time. It takes attention. That is how you direct your listening to certain elements of the sound, paying attention to Shall we say the sound characteristics, are they, are they happy? Are they sad the way they're talking? Does their pitch go up? Does their pitch go down? Um, how you direct attention is one of the properties that changes. In that particular paper, um, this was work by Shannon Heald, my lab, we were looking at the neural mechanisms that were involved. In other words, how does your brain change when you're listening to speech from somebody who's hard to understand? And furthermore, there are two ways in which you can do this learning. So one way is you can sort of learn the talker. That is, your learning can accommodate the way that person speaks regardless of what they say. So you could hear something they'd never said to you before and now understand it better if you learn how that person speaks versus memorizing a few set words from that talker. So if that person says a few stock phrases like, hi, how are you? And you memorize those phrases, some of it generalizes a little bit, but in, in general, what you're really learning is the patterns of those few words that you've understood. So what we looked at in that study is, how does your brain change when you're learning the talker, when you're learning generally about that person's speech? And what we learned is that even within 100 milliseconds, the way you latch onto the sound patterns, the way you attend to speech, changes as a function of training. But there are changes that take place at 100 milliseconds, 
at 200 milliseconds, at 400 milliseconds. In other words, your brain keeps working on it and it works on it differently than if you're just memorizing some, some phrases. When you say training, does that mean like how our brain processes? Yes. So in those studies, for example, uh, people are listening to computer-generated speech that's hard to understand. Basically, you could get about one out of four words correct if you listen to the speech. That's how hard it is. We train people by letting them hear a word, and then they type in what they think they've heard. So they might hear, oh, and you go, what was that? Did he say dog or did he say mog or pog? I don't know what that was. Maybe it was dog. So you type in the word dog. And then after you type it in, you hear it again and you see it printed. So that's how we provide training. So in those studies, for example, we test people on 100 words that they've never heard from this talker before. They're synthetically generated computer words. Then we train them on about 300 to 400 words by giving them a spoken word, they identify it, then you hear it again and see it printed. And none of those words were on the first test. They're all novel words. And then we test them again on a new hundred words, all novel words, but we don't give them any training. We find that those 300 words of feedback and training actually improves performance from about 25% correct to 45% correct in just an hour. So it's possible to improve substantially. In a study we did in 1986, we actually demonstrated that 10 days worth of training was where people never heard the same words twice. They were just trained over 10 days. When we brought them back six months later, they actually were doing better for words that they had never heard before from that synthesizer. Meaning that not only did they learn that talker, but they retained that learning for six months. So what is the, I guess, benefit of this research? Like, is it for people just to understand better or... So there are two aspects to it. One is the general scientific principle, which, um, which is an important one. It used to be thought that probably about the age of one, one and a half, people had learned all they could learn about speech. In other words, you knew what you were hearing and your speech sensitivity didn't change. But we did this learning with adults and we showed that fundamental changes take place in your brain when you're learning a new talker that reflects learning the speech of that talker. And so we showed that there's fundamental plasticity in your brain for speech, even into adulthood. And one of the things that's important about that is it parallels the work we've done with perfect pitch. In other words, where people thought you could only learn perfect pitch as a kid before the age of say 10, we can show you can learn perfect pitch as an adult at the age of 20 older. And what all of this means is that your brain is always plastic. You're always able to learn. One of the things that a lot of scientists have said is that you come into the world with a kind of genetic endowment for perception or understanding. And maybe you learn early on some things like how to perceive speech or how to perceive sounds. Um, but once you learn those, you're sort of frozen. And what you've got is, is what you keep and you, you don't change it at all. Our work suggests that your brain stays plastic even into adulthood. You can always learn new things. It just may take more work. So, eventually, you can 
learn things no matter the age and like languages i know a lot of people say you're supposed to learn them early on so that you can process it earlier but your study proves that even into adulthood you can still learn languages i think that's right i think it gets harder one reason it gets harder is once you've learned one language that sort of sets the rules and expectations you have for how you process language and now if you take a language class one hour one one day a week or one hour a few days a week essentially you're getting very little knowledge about that language at any point in time and so of course it's going to be hard and it takes takes years to learn it it turns out that if you take some people and you pick them up from their home country as adults and you move them and drop them down in another country where they don't speak the language they can actually learn that language especially if their social life depends on it. and if they have to use both languages as simultaneous translators the way their brains look is just as if they learned those two languages from early on and they become very fluent and able to use those two languages and so our argument would be that your ability to learn that second language late in life may depend on your social considerations. Do you, do you have to depend on that language? You know, is it that where you make your friends? Are you having to tell jokes in that language? Um, but if you use that language as if your life depends on it, you'll learn that second language very well. So that's why all these pressing for me when I grow up, I want to move to like a foreign country. So that way I'm forced to speak the language. That way I'm become more fluent. I think that's exactly right. People, people want to learn a second language, but they may not realize the amount of work it takes. However, that it takes work and is achievable is a different scientific statement from saying you're not able to learn this as an adult. And those are kind of the two positions. And our research suggests that you stay plastic. It just may take more effort because you have already established a body of knowledge that you kind of have to overcome. Yeah. So essentially it's like a mental block that we've unconsciously placed because we've learned it since like our twenties. Exactly. If I say the word dog to you and the thing that comes to mind is a brown furry thing that has two floppy ears, four legs and a tail and barks. That's what you're going to think. And if you're learning a new language where the word dog refers to stars in the sky, you'll be thinking about furry things instead of stars in the sky. And because those things come to mind, it'll be harder to overcome that. But you, that's the argument. So also learning how to make those different associations in another language is important. Yes. Very cool. Uh, I think one of the things you mentioned earlier was like fluctuations when a speaker was giving a lecture or something. Um, do you think there's a certain fluctuation or tone of voice that would like capture students' attention more in a classroom setting? That's a great question. It's a very interesting one. So it's argued that when people talk to kids, and it's also true when they talk to their dog, that they modulate their speech differently. So there's a lot of pitch rises, um, and and it's there is some evidence that suggests that those variations in pitch actually get attention. And so if you think about, if you go to a play, for example, and you think about the sound of the way people talk in a play, if they were talking to you that way in your living room, you'd think they were nuts. 
Um, but they sort of over-dramatize the speech or they uh, accentuate elements in the speech. And it's demonstrated, actually, that that aids learning and it actually grabs attention. Um, if you listen to a baseball uh, game, for example, the announcer, you listen on the radio, the announcer will say something like, and there's a high fly ball, instead of like demonstrating it that way. That kind of demonstration, that kind of um, exaggeration grabs attention. And so I think when people lecture, they try to be a little bit more dramatic and that will grab attention. Like, especially when like dog owners speak to their dogs, their voices are way high pitched than their normal ones. Yes. Okay. For the final question, can you explain what memory consolidation and sleep is? Yeah. So we're talking, we've been talking about learning and how we learn things and so forth. You probably can think of a situation where maybe you were sitting in a class and the teacher was explaining how to solve a problem and you follow every single thing she says and five minutes later you cannot remember a single thing she said to you. That is, you understand it in the moment, but then you sort of forget it quickly. Turns out that lots of things are at risk for forgetting. And consolidation is, is the process by which we take things that we learn and we rehearse them so we want to hold on to them. But even when we rehearse them, we sometimes forget them. So like, for example, if you're learning a piece on the piano, you might practice it and practice it and practice it and get better. Or if you're playing the guitar, you might practice a piece and get better at it. But the next day you feel like, oh, did I forget what I was playing? When you start playing, you may actually remember what you were playing. Sleep will consolidate what you've learned the day before. So while you sleep, there are changes taking place in your brain that translate the memories that you acquire during the day and turn them from something from working memory into long-term memories. So consolidation is the way in which very forgettable information we get during the day becomes stabilized and stable and available in long-term memory. And sleep is the process that does that. It's like quality of sleep is very important. Quality of sleep is very important. So for example, one hypothesis one could raise is that as people get older, when you're in your 70s, your 60s and 70s and 80s, sleep becomes fragmented. So people wake up a lot um, and that waking disrupts their sleep. And we know, for example, that that waking actually disrupts their hormones. So for example, the hormonal balance in an older adult looks different from a younger adult. If you take a younger adult and you disrupt her sleep, her hormonal balance will look like the older adult. In other words, sleep is necessary to maintaining a hormonal balance. Um, but it turns out that older adults will nap as well. So they nap during the day. Well, college kids will nap during the day too. Lots of people nap during the day. And so the question is, when you just get a little bit of sleep, how will that affect your consolidation process? And we have some evidence now that suggests that even an hour's, hour and a half nap the same consolidation as a full night's sleep. So even though disruptions of sleep may change aspects of brain processing and hormones, you still will get consolidation as a function of saying hour and a half of sleep. Well, do you guys know why as people get older, their sleep is fragmented? 
It's a basic scientific question. We know that people's hormone levels change. We know that the brain changes substantially. We don't know whether things, which, which hormones are necessarily responsible for those changes or why they occur. We do know that there, there are processes like uh, uh, genetic processes called telomeres that are involved in aspects of aging. And those changes may be related to other kinds of changes in the brain that might disrupt sleep. Um, but we don't know at this point, as far as I know, uh, what actually produces that. Um, how come an hour and a half nap produces the same amount of consolidation as a full night's rest? It's a good question. We don't know the answer entirely to that. Um, we've only just demonstrated. We just have a paper under review now showing that an hour and a half, a 90-minute sleep uh, nap will consolidate in the same way as a full night's sleep. We can suggest at this point that consolidation does not require... So one model, so what happens when you sleep? One of the things that happens when you sleep is you go through a series of stages. You go through slow wave sleep and you end up in REM, rapid eye movement sleep. And those stages are different physiologically and they have different psychological consequences. Like you dream differently, you're differently motorically active and so forth. So, so your brain changes while you sleep. One of the hypotheses could have been that you need to go through that cycle once and then again, and then again, and again, in order to consolidate learning. So that would be a kind of model that says that things add up over the night's sleep. In demonstrating that a 90-minute nap will do the same as a full night's sleep, it suggests that the processes that take place in your brain in one full sleep cycle are sufficient for consolidation. Now, there are two different, there are different kinds of models of consolidation. One says that processes in a part of the brain called the hippocampus are necessary to transfer things from short-term memory to long-term memory. Another process sort of says that your synapses change so that um, weak synapses get sort of diminished and strong synapses get strengthened. Uh, both of those may be true or either one may be true. There's not a strong test of it at this point. There is some suggestion that the hippocampal story has some validity. That is, processes in the hippocampus when you sleep, called sleep spindles, may actually be responsible for transferring information from working memory to long-term memory um, and to stabilize memory, but we don't know if that's true yet. That sounds very interesting. Hi guys and welcome back. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did and learned something new. Thank you so much again to Professor Howard Ashbaum for taking time out of his day to speak with us and provide us with the knowledge that he has acquired over the past few decades. Now thank you guys so much for joining me. I hope you have a wonderful rest of your morning, afternoon, night, evening, wherever you're listening to this podcast and I'll see you next time.